Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. If you can't tell from the screen, we're talking about Jesus again today. And if you remember back a number of weeks ago, we, we started in, in this series, we talked about Jesus before as well. So this is our Jesus number two, all right? Um, we're going to continue walking through the series called Simple Church. And the point is to talk about some of the more basic areas of our belief, take some of that complicated theology and make it simple So not only can we understand it, but we are more unified as a family of believers here. We're more on the same page about what we do and we don't believe. Now, I'll say this just super honestly. Part of, of understanding our beliefs is letting go of conflict where there is no need, okay? Part of understanding our beliefs is letting go of conflict where there is no need. Christians have a nasty habit of fighting with each other over beliefs, okay? It's just the honest truth. Instead of being a unified family intent on serving God and seeing his will done on earth as it is in heaven, we argue, we call each other heretics, we excommunicate each other, we gossip, we dismiss each other. And the honest truth is that stuff needs to stop, okay? Now... Uh, The Apostle Paul, in the book of Philippians, he begs believers to be of one mind, love, spirit, and purpose. One mind, one love, one spirit, one purpose. Not with each other, but with Jesus Christ. Because Paul knows that if we commit ourselves to being more like Christ, we will be more united with each other. Not by our minds, our spirit, and our purpose, but by Christ's mind, Christ's spirit, Christ's love, and Christ's purpose. We journey together towards Christ. We're not journeying toward each other. We journey together towards Christ. The closer we get to Christ, the closer we get to each other. That's how this is supposed to work, okay? Now, one of the things I do want to say is I recognize Easter is just around the corner, um, which means that we're going to take a little break from Simple Church. I want to just take some time and just spend it in Palm Sunday and Easter and, and all that that means for us as Christians Um, You can think of today as sort of a bridge between Simple Church and taking a break for Easter, okay? Uh, Jeff uh, Moore is actually going to bring us a word next week that prepares us for the celebration of Easter, then the next week is Palm Sunday, and then Easter, and after Easter, we will resume Simple Church to bring it to a conclusion. So this morning, again, we're taking a look at Jesus If you guys weren't around or missed the first teaching on Jesus, the point of us talking about Jesus on these mornings is to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? Why why is he important to our faith? And if we can agree that he's important to Christianity, then what should we know about him? What's important for us to be aware of about him? So if you missed that first Jesus, Jesus 1, I encourage you to check it out. It's on 
the website and Facebook and YouTube and the podcast, all that stuff is where you can find it. This morning, we're going to talk about Jesus again, but um, if I'm honest, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> and here's why. Some of what we're talking about can go against the grain, but I'm not super nervous about that. If, if you're really upset, you can talk to me and send me emails and all that. It's fine. Um, what I'm more nervous about is you ever have a topic that you want to talk about or you want to explain to somebody and you're just not sure if you can adequately do it? That's kind of where I'm at. I have no doubt in my mind that this is where God wants me to be this morning in terms of what we're talking about. But there's a part of me that's like, I hope I can get us there. I'm just not totally sure. So, man, we are going to pray the Holy Spirit does what he needs to do and intervenes on my words so that they just mean what they're supposed to mean. Um, and we're going to be in the book of Hebrews primarily. We'll jump to some other places, but Hebrews. So if you guys like to read the scripture in your Bible, grab a Bible. Hebrews chapter one is where we're gonna start. Uh, we'll go to Hebrews 11, we'll go to Luke and Matthew as well, but mostly it's Hebrews. Um, and before we read that, I just wanna pray for us. Jesus, thanks for today, and thanks for all who gather here in person and online. Um, God, what you're doing with your bride is fantastic and incredible. As Scott mentioned, whether it's across the Atlantic Conference, and other churches like our church plant in Allentown or it's, or it's right here in the relationships in this room, you're doing fantastic work. I just pray, God, that as we talk about your son this morning, that the lessons that you have for us would come across clearly, that they'd be your words and your lessons and not mine. In your name, amen. amen. Okay. Hebrews chapter one, verses one to three. Here's what we're gonna, oh, I'll say this. If for some reason I can't get this across clearly, I will end this sermon by giving you five clear points of things about Jesus. So we, I'm gonna communicate those even if I can't communicate those for the next 20 minutes, all right? <laughs> all right. Um, Hebrews chapter one, verses one to three. Here's what it says. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. All right, there's two things I really wanna point out from this particular passage in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is very purposefully pointing us to how the past is tied into the future. How do we connect our faith, our current faith, with our forefathers of this faith? People like Noah and Abraham and kings like David and Solomon or prophets like Elijah and Isaiah. How do we connect to them? Because you know, we read our Old Testament writing, we see God speaking to these very people. And the author of Hebrews says, like God spoke to them, he now speaks to us by his son. So don't miss this, this is important. In the past, he spoke to our forefathers, now he speaks to us by his son. The son speaks on behalf of the father, okay? It's a really important thing for us to get. Um, and that would be a very central thing to Christianity. 
Jesus is the central figure in Christ Christianity, Christ, right? Christ is right there at the center. Christ speaks on behalf of God to us. That's an essential thing for us to get. Now, second, let's understand who Jesus is to God. The author of Hebrews makes this point very clear. He says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The Son is Jesus. The Father is God. Jesus is the exact representation of God. If we want to know what God would do or God would say in any given situation, we can look at the life of Jesus and get a really good idea of exactly what God looks like from the life of Jesus. There has never been an exact representation of God walking on earth before Jesus, and there has not been an exact representation of God walking on earth since Jesus. Mankind is made in the image of God, but we are not the exact representation of God. Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Noah, Abraham, these are our forefathers in the faith, but none of them are an exact representation of God. Scripture is clearly telling us there is only one who is the exact representation, and that is Jesus. So Jesus is going to speak to us in a new way and represent God in a new way than all the others who have ever come before. And we see this through his time on earth in his ministry. You know, Moses gave us the law that said an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And Jesus comes along and says, hey guys, I know you heard it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I'm gonna tell you a new thing. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Now, does that mean that Moses somehow got the message wrong? No. But hear me. The first step in a relationship is never the last step in a relationship, right? Your first step in your relationship of following God might be treating somebody differently than you've ever treated them before. Perhaps there's somebody in your life, before you followed Jesus, who you treated very badly. You didn't give them the time of day, you were mean to them, maybe you gossiped about them, maybe you just hated them, whatever that might be. The first step in following Jesus might look like, I don't know, Stop hating them, right? The final step in following Jesus might look more like reconciliation, repentance, entering into a loving relationship with this person rather than a, the hated one. The first step is never the same as the last step. That's the point. So when Jesus comes along and says, you heard this, there was a reason for that. That was an important thing that Moses, that God gave Moses and Moses gave us. But Jesus is the exact representation of God, which means that his words to pray for those who persecute you, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, those things supersede everything else that came before. Because this is God's true heart. Good first step. Here's what the final step looks like, okay? So Jesus speaks to us in a way that we have never been spoken to before. But my, here's, I guess, the thing that I'm hoping that we can kind of make the jump here. In Hebrews 1, the author is making a very specific intention of connecting us to our past, our forefathers. Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Rahab, all of these folks are our forefathers. He wants to connect us there. So I want to stay connected there. I don't want to leave there yet. This is where another chapter is going to come in handy. So if you have your Bible open to Hebrews 1... Turn to Hebrews 11. 
Now, I am not gonna read this passage. I'm not gonna read any part of this passage. I want you to know that this passage exists because here is what I have found in my years of ministry or just going to church and not being in ministry is that there are certain passages in the Bible we really like and there's ones we don't know what to do with. So we use the ones we like, we ignore the ones we don't know what to do with. Hebrews 11 is one of those because the majority of the chapter, we like it. But at the end, we don't know what to do with, so we often ignore the end, okay? So I wanna encourage you to read Hebrews 11. I'm just gonna talk about it. Hebrews 11 is a long list of the heroes of the faith. In Hebrews 1, he's talking about our forefathers. Hebrews 11 sort of lays out all of our forefathers. A long list of people like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, and more. And what, he, what, the, what the author is doing is he's saying, look, here is who Rahab was, here's what she did. Here is who Enoch was, and here is what he did. And so you sort of get this Cliff Notes version of the entire Old Testament in this chapter 11 to give us an idea of how these people lived by faith and by grace and by trust in Jesus. Sort of for the entire chapter, except for the last part, we're like pumped up. Yeah, I wanna be like Enoch. Yeah, I wanna live by faith like Jacob. Yeah, this is cool, Rahab, what she did. And we get pumped up, pumped up, pumped up. And then the end of the chapter comes and what we learn is that many of these faithful followers our forefathers were faithful, but it came at a really high cost. Some paid with their lives. Some were tortured. Some were flogged, put in chains, or became destitute, only to be mistreated and persecuted, even after their life was ruined. So Hebrew 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. It tells us that while God spoke to these Old Testament heroes that he's gonna speak through his son now, and these Old Testament heroes lived by faith and hope in following God, but this following God came at a high cost. The cost was their life. So giving up your life for another, for a cause, it shows a measure of love right? Agape love. We talked about love not that long ago. Agape love is sacrificial love. John 15, 13 tells us, hey, the person who lays their life down for a brother, a sister, a friend, there's no greater love than that. Okay. But giving up your life for a person or a cause, it means something else as well. It means giving up your power. And this is the tricky part for me this morning in terms of making sure I'm getting this point across. Each of us has some level of survival instinct in each of us, right? Fight or flight, that's what we call it. I remember when I was in high school, my alarm never woke me up. I definitely prioritized sleep over school then. And uh, so mom would have to come down and make me get out of bed. But the problem was that I would wake up swinging. Right, so mom had to stop waking me up and she'd have to stand at the doorway and yell or throw things at me or something like that. We all have fight or flight inside of us and whether it's fight or it's flight, that's all a survival instinct. Something deep down buried inside of us. You're either fighting the threat or you're running away from the threat, that's survival. 
some measure of us desires for life to continue, even if it's just on the level of your body. Even if you've given up hope, you know, your heart can continue to, to beat, right? Even when you have no hope, your heart continues to beat. Even if you've given up hope, your lungs can continue to function and breathe oxygen in. If you decide, I'm just, I'm done. I'm just gonna hold my breath. Then you hold your breath until you pass out, and when you pass out, your body is automatically gonna start breathing for you again, right? There's, there, just at the core of our bodies, the way our bodies work, there's this physiological desire for survival. It, it, it's, it's power within us to just survive, but, but even beyond our body's attempt to continue to live is our will. And that's what we tend to think of the most. We have, we have dreams, purpose, desire. That's all in our will to live. And, and most of us have will to live. And I wanna, I wanna recognize that that's not true of everybody. I don't want some soundbite going out across the internet thinking that you know, we think that there's not people out there that have no hope and don't wanna live anymore. I, I know that that's true. I know that that exists. But most people have a will to live. Most people will fight to continue to live. Whatever that threat is, we will, we will fight to live through that threat. And, and most of us have the power to do so. And for those that don't have the power to fight to live, I know that there's so many of you even just sitting here right now that would fight on their behalf for them to live. Hebrews chapter 11 at the very end describes some pretty horrific methods of torture and death for those saints and those fathers and mothers of the faith, they chose to give up their power in sacrifice. And, and to make this clear, I, I know I've told the story of Dirk Willems before. Dirk Willems is an Anabaptist for a long time ago. And Dirk was put into prison for rejecting infant baptism and instead baptizing adults who were confessing belief in Jesus. And... Um, while he's in prison, he does like sort of the cartoon thing. He ties a bunch of rags together, throws them out the window, and climbs down the rags to run away. And as he's running away, one of his captors, a soldier, chases him. And, uh, and Dirk runs across a body of water, makes it. His captor crashes through the ice and falls into the cold, freezing water, begins to drown. Dirk had the power to keep running. Right? Yeah. Some of us sitting here would go, yeah, I'd have kept running. That would have been God's providence. He just fell through the ice. I'm out of here, right? Dirk even had another power. Dirk could have turned around, come back to the ice, and made sure that his pursuer did not make it. Right? Dirk had that power. But instead, Dirk laid aside power over another person, and instead he used power for another person. He rescued his pursuer. He pulled that soldier out of the ice, kept him from drowning. Dirk was rearrested and then burned at the stake. A deep cost to following Jesus, right? Just like we read about in Hebrews 11. Living by faith, amping us up, doing the right thing, following Jesus, and yet, following Jesus comes at a cost for some. It came at a huge cost for Dirk. 
What is this laying aside of power over and then picking up power for? That's what I want us to walk away with today because I think this is a really important thing for us to get. In Matthew 9, Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector. I want to read that to you. It's, it's very short. The story goes like this. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, I, I want to just dig into this for just a minute. I want to talk about power for and power over. I need you to understand, tax collectors were incredibly wealthy, but they were thought of as the lowest of the low. A tax collector was responsible to obtain a certain amount of money to be turned into the government, right? So if the Roman government said every Jewish citizen owes two silver coins, it was the tax collector's responsibility to go and collect the two silver coins. They would keep records, and if somebody didn't turn their two silver coins in, well, they're going to get, at the very least, thrown into prison, right? That's, that's the purpose of a tax collector. But here's the thing. Tax collectors didn't have to only charge what they were told to charge. If the Romans said every Jewish citizen needs to turn in two silver coins, a tax collector could say, well, the tax is three silver coins. And then he takes the two silver coins from all the citizens, turns them into the Roman government, and pockets the extra silver coin for himself. It was very, very easy for a tax collector to get very wealthy very quickly. And it became pretty common for people to think of the tax collector as the bad guy and, and, and the worst guy. Sure, they're occupied by the Roman government, but the tax collector, he's the real problem. What makes Matthew a bit worse is that Matthew was born a Jew. He's born and raised as a Jew. And so in some ways, you could understand the Romans occupying this country, bringing in a Roman soldier and making them tax collector, and the Roman soldier goes around and does all that stuff. In fact, you'd sort of expect that's the way it was. You wouldn't expect one of your own people to sign up for the job as tax collector. Not only do you already hate tax collectors, but you're going to be that much more upset because one of your own is betraying you and collecting the tax and charging you extra so that they get rich. The hatred for Matthew would have been way deeper than normal for a tax collector. So power over Matthew, power over Matthew would have looked like treating him like everyone else did, spitting his direction, ignoring him, threatening him, telling him that he didn't belong, telling him that he would never belong, telling him he's gonna go to hell, or maybe doing violence to him, beating him up when he had a chance, walking through a crowd and throwing that elbow as you walked by. That's power over a person. But what did Jesus do? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't use power over. He used power for. He used his position as a rabbi, as a teacher, not to throw scripture at Matthew, but instead invite him into belonging way before Matthew would have belonged, right? Way before Matthew would have confessed any sort of belief, way before Matthew would have changed his lifestyle and stopped cheating people, 
Jesus invites him into belonging. He invites him to follow. And then Jesus goes and breaks bread. He has a meal at Matthew's house. And what does Matthew do? Invites all his tax collector buddies. All these other people that are hated and thought of as sinful, right? I hope you notice in scripture, sinners is put in in quotations there because it's clear that there's a thought of who is sinners and, and who is not. But all these other sinners come to the meal. So Jesus eats with Matthew. Power for would have been doing, power over would have been doing violence to Matthew. Power for is inviting Matthew to belong and eating with him, breaking bread with him, saying, look, yeah, invite your friends. I know everybody hates them. I I just want to eat with them. I just want want to meet them. I want to hear about them. I I want to talk to them. And then when the Pharisees show up, Pharisees show up and they see this rabbi, Jesus, eating at this table full of all of these sinners. Well, they have all sorts of questions, right? Again, this is another example. What could Jesus have done with power over? With power over, he could have thrown Matthew to the wolves. He could have been like, oh, wait, these are tax collectors? Oh, I didn't even know. And, and you know, run away, right? Throw Matthew to the wolves. Let the, let the Pharisees have their way with, with all of these sinners that are there. He could have left. Or Jesus could have used power over to uh, ignore the Pharisees, right? Or walk up to the door or the window where the Pharisees are peering through and slam it shut on their face. He could use power over against them. But instead... Jesus uses power for to engage the Pharisees. He doesn't comply. He doesn't condemn. He engages the Pharisees. He enters into conversation with the Pharisees. He gives them something to think about. He takes the scripture as what they revere more than anything else. So what does he do? He quotes scripture to them and says, hey, go and learn what this means. If you can understand what this means, you'll understand why I'm breaking bread at this table tonight. Jesus uses power for to protect Matthew and his sinner friends. Are you starting to see the difference between power over and power for? I mean, even consider the fact that when Jesus is arrested, Jesus says, I could have called a legion of angels to my defense. But instead of doing that, what does he do? Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to sacrifice. Jesus gives up his life rather than using the power that is at his disposal to take life from others. He had the power. He could have done it. And yet he chooses to give it up. Power over is often used by the strengths and abilities that we've been given. It trusts in ourself. It trusts in what feels good, like revenge. Right? It often mirrors what the world does around us. But power for chooses a different way. It isn't about the cathartic experience of vengeance. It isn't about trusting in ourselves. It doesn't look like the way of the world. Power for commits itself to following the radical and power-threatening way of Jesus. Make no mistake, the way of Jesus threatens what the world thinks about power. And when you follow Jesus, your life will threaten what the world thinks about power. It's radical. Like, like, 
turning back and loving your enemy who fell through the ice by pulling him out. Who does that? Who doesn't just keep running? Jesus, right? In that moment, Dirk looked a whole lot more like Jesus than he looked like Dirk. Like, like taking a person who was deeply hated and inviting them to be a part of your circle. Who does that? I just want to hang out with people I like. I want to hang out with people I don't like. Oh, Jesus does that. Maybe I should look a little more like Jesus and a little, a little less like Nick. Or like choosing to engage those who hate you rather than ignore them or hate them in return. Who does that? Do we know? Jesus, right? Jesus does that. <laughs> it's always the right answer. No, it's not always the right answer. But come on, this morning, Jesus is the answer. Who doesn't just return hate? Who doesn't just return venom for venom? But Jesus. Jesus' life is this radical example of how we should treat the people around us. And what each of us could learn this morning is that we should look a little more like Jesus and a little less like us. Now, the world looks at loving your enemy and choosing invitation over exclusion as weakness. That, that's true. I mean, look at the books we read, the magazines we read. Look at the celebrity gossip that's there on the grocery store shelf. Look at the movies that we watch and the television shows that are out there. Loving your enemy and inviting someone in rather than excluding someone out, that's not looked at as the right thing, the popular thing. That's looked as a weak thing. What I'm describing as power for, the world sees as weakness. The world is more interested in the warrior than the rabbi. Think about our cinematic heroes. Think about Rambo and Rocky and John Wayne and Zorro and the Lone Ranger, right? That's power over others. That's what violence is, power over others. You have exerted your power in a complete way over another person. That's violence, okay? It's also power through being alone. Isn't that the thing that makes Rambo Rambo? Like superhuman goes in by himself into a situation and fixes the whole thing or wins the battle or whatever all by his loans himself. No one's there to help him. It's just this one dude doing it all, right? That's Rambo. But is that what Jesus calls us to? That aloneness, that solo existence? Think about the Lone Ranger, Zorro. I mean, it's, it's like the cowboy with the quickest straw wins. The world sees that as strength. Manliest cowboy in the West is the one who can draw fastest, right? I don't know what that was. It was like two, <laughs> two barrels pointed in opposite ways. I don't know. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not practicing my finger guns enough. I'll work on that for next time, right? That's what the world sees as strength. So what's the opposite of taking life? It's giving life, right? It's granting life. It's mercy. What's the opposite of going solo? Community, asking for help. What's the opposite of an itchy trigger finger? Patience, being slow to anger, grace. Now tell me, 
how often you see the world around us elevating things like grace and patience and slow to anger and mercy and granting life and asking for help. The world around us sees those things as weakness. And here's how I know that. Because I was raised on earth, I'm a male, and I struggle to see any of those things as anything but weak. That's how I know that the world around me thinks that those things are weak. Because you grow up wanting to be the Rambo. You, wanna, you grow up wanting to be the smartest one that fixes the problem, that does it all by yourself, that doesn't depend on somebody else, that doesn't ask for help. To be the strongest, the biggest, the best, the fastest, whatever it might be. I got them right that time. Right? We are raised in a world that sees these things as weak. Now hear me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul, in this passage, the context is that Paul is pleading with God to take away this thorn in his side. And we never learn what the thorn is. We don't know. It could be like, um, it could be like a, a sin that he struggles with, right? We all know what that's like, okay? It could be uh, chronic pain. Maybe Paul's got a bad back and he's just always in pain. But whatever it is, he is, he's going to God and saying, look God, please take this thorn from me. I, I just, I don't want it anymore. And God responds to him with these words. Well, I'm pointing this way, these words. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power, God's power is made perfect in weakness. Hear that. God's power is made perfect in your weakness. Not just Paul's weakness, my weakness. God's power is made perfect in my weakness. So Paul goes on to conclude. He says this, he goes, well, if that's true, if what God tells me is true, then I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power is on me. For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Wait a second. Are you telling me then that Paul delights in the very things that we see at the end of Hebrews 11? Paul delights in the hardships and afflictions that our Old Testament heroes have gone through. Paul recognizes that life isn't just about all the cool and good things that get to be attributed to your name that you've done in faith and grace, but there's hardship that comes with it, and in the midst of the hardships, I'm gonna give it to God, and I'm gonna delight in those things because in my weakness, God is made strong? Is that what he's saying? Shouldn't we stand up and strike back? Shouldn't we use our power to stop these things from happening? Shouldn't we protect ourselves from these afflictions? No. Why? Because in them, God's power is perfect. In our weakness, God's grace is sufficient when we follow Jesus, we trade the sort of power that the world tells us that we need for the sort of perfect power of God. And that sounds weird, and it rubs against the grain, and it goes against everything that I learned growing up about what it means to be tough, 
And yet, I'm supposed to delight in those things. The power of God doesn't promise me ease in this life, but it does boast in the power of eternal life, right? This brings me to my last piece of scripture for this morning. It's Luke chapter four. I've read this many times here, and I'm gonna read it again today. Luke chapter four, verse 18 is where it starts. Jesus, at the start of his ministry, I mean, the very beginning of his ministry, he's invited back to his hometown of Nazareth to go to the synagogue and to read scripture that morning. Jesus has handed the scroll of Isaiah. And he has no choice in that. We're pretty clear. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. But it's Jesus who opens the scroll of Isaiah and chooses the part of Isaiah that he is going to read. Jesus determines that. He chooses carefully and he says these words. And I will tell you that these words may have very well been the purpose of Christ. The purpose that we are to be united in. The purpose that we are to be journeying towards. The purpose that we are chasing. He says this. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says to all who are gathered in that synagogue, he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's he saying there? He's saying, look, this prophecy that was written so long ago, so many generations ago about who the Messiah would be and when the Messiah would come, I am that Messiah. I fulfill these words today in your presence. This is why I'm here. This is what I'm going to do. So what was fulfilled? Well, clearly, that Jesus is a sword-wielding Rambo king who did it all by himself without partnership and outside of community. That Jesus was intent on appearing, appearing as the manliest man, the John Wayne of rabbis, rejecting any sign of weakness and rejecting anyone that appeared weak, that he focused on strength and the accumulation of wealth, that he would elevate the power, the powerful and the rich to rule. He would stomp on those who were not rich and who were not powerful, but he wouldn't rule them with grace and mercy. He was gonna rule them with an iron fist, right? Clearly, that's what's fulfilled in this. So why is it then <laughs> that most days this is what it seems like the world thinks is being fulfilled? This is the example the world lifts up to us. Why is it, dare I say, in so many churches that I have been a part of or I have been to or I've heard sermons from that this is the sort of Messiah that they elevate? Because this is not why he came. He didn't come to reject the poor. He didn't come to reject the weak. He came to the poor, to the prisoner, the blind and the oppressed. He came to those without power. He came to those in weakness. What did the Apostle Paul learn? Delight in weakness, for in weakness God's power is made perfect. To the poor, Jesus brings good news. So too shall we. To the prisoner, Jesus proclaims freedom. So too shall we. To the blind, Jesus proclaims sight. So too shall we as followers of Jesus. To the oppressed, he releases them. So too shall we break the chains that bind us. 
To all he proclaims, proclaims the Lord's favor, so too should we, not knowing that we are a people chosen because we're somehow better than anybody else or we have it more together than anybody else, but we are a chosen people set apart so we can tell other people that they are chosen as well. So too shall we. We need to follow Jesus. And in doing so, there are things that we choose to give up. Choose to give up power over. And instead, I pray the Holy Spirit shows me how to use power for others. Because in that trade-off, man, I'm in good company. Amen? Okay. I did tell you, I would tell you, in case I didn't make it clear, five things about Jesus that I'm hoping you're walking away with today. So here they are, and then I'll take a question from here, and I'll take a question from online. Jesus speaks on behalf of God. That's number one. Really, really important for us to know. It's central to Christianity. Uh, number two, Jesus is the exact representation of God. Again, central to Christianity, important for us to know. Three, there is a cost to following Jesus. I would like to say this is dogmatic across Christianity, but I cannot say that. There are many Christian churches who believe that there is not a cost to following Jesus. Okay? So I, I can't say that. Number four, Jesus used power for, not power over. And number five, Jesus' power makes us strong in our weakness. And I will tell you that understanding how Jesus' power makes us strong in our weakness is something that will take a lifetime to work out. And what you think, of, think it means today will be different than what you think it means 10 years from now and two months from now, all right? But one of the things we hold on to is in our weakness, God is made strong. I am looking here for any questions online. I'm not seeing any, so I'll give them a chance. Anybody have a question here in person I can take a shot at? Worst I can say is I don't know. Well, Martin Luther, was, so the question was, the uh, question's kind of like the Dirk Williams guy. Who is that? And, and you, you're saying you thought that story was a Martin Luther story? Yeah. So... Martin Luther was a Catholic priest, became Lutheran, or he became, he left the Catholic church and then the Lutheran church was named after him. Um, Martin Luther was not an Anabaptist. So Anabaptist means rebaptizer and it essentially means baptizing again. The Lutheran church, when the Anabaptist church was founded, and still I think, I'm not positive on this, I'm not gonna pretend to be an expert of the Lutheran church, does infant baptism. Okay, so then, so the, the Anabaptists would do believer's baptism. Uh, so Dirk Willems was, I believe he was from, I believe he was Dutch, or, or he was from the, yeah, he's Dutch. So all that happened then, um, and in the story, it, it's a true story. Um, there is a monument to him in the town where it happened. I don't remember where that is. Uh, unfortunately, he was recaptured and, uh, and executed after that, so, Yeah. Anabaptist story. I think a question came in here. Interesting. Okay. Um, online, question is, so God, uh, so God, up until Jesus, 
was not coming through clearly to us as humans. He then sent Jesus in order that we might know him slash God. Yes, is my answer. But I'm, I'm gonna carefully say yes to that. So um, there's a guy named Greg Boyd. He's a he's living theologian. He does a really good job at talking about the passage in Hebrews 1 where it talks about how Jesus is the exact representation of God. And, and it, what it says there is that he's the radiance. And so the way that Greg Boyd explains it, and I'm gonna just tap on Greg Boyd to answer this question, is he says it's sort of like the sky was cloudy and you knew the sun was there. You feel the heat from the sun. You know there's light, you know, the sun creates light, but because of the clouds, you can't clearly see the sun. Every now and then the clouds move and you get like, oh, there it is, I saw a ray shoot through, or oh, I saw a little piece of the sun, but we didn't really ever see clearly what the sun was until Jesus comes. Jesus is the radiance, the exact radiance of who God is, and so in that moment, it's like the clouds all clear, you have a bright blue sky, the sun is shining clearly, and for the first time, we get the most perfect image of who God is. So do I want to say that it wasn't clear? I mean, I don't know. Have you read the Old Testament? Sometimes I think it's not clear. But I would say that God has progressively revealed who he is from the beginning of his relationship with his followers until Jesus comes, and then Jesus perfectly reveals who he is. So like I said, when he says to Moses, you know, God says to Moses, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, there's a reason for that. It's an important thing that happens right then and there, and I'll talk about that some other time, specifically why that is, but that's not the end-all, be-all. That's just the first step in the Israelites following God. The final step is love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek, and Jesus clearly gives us that, and then nobody who comes along after, James, Peter, Paul, whoever it is, ever says, oh, well, Jesus said this, but I tell you this. No one can do that because Jesus is the perfect image of God. So hopefully that answers that question. All right, let me, let me pray for us, all right? Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.